This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss a topic that is ubiquitous in today's news, uh, but a topic that also has a very long history, a history that's deeply relevant for us today. Uh, That is the history of whistleblowers and how we understand what a whistleblower is and uh, what role whistleblowers have played, should play, and hopefully will play in our democracy. We are deeply uh, privileged to have with us uh, the author of uh, one of the best books that I've read in the last few weeks. I've read a lot of books in the last few weeks. One of the best books that I've read in the last few weeks. Uh, The author is Tom Muller, and he's written a book called The Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud. Uh, Tom is the author of this book, as well as the author of numerous other articles, uh, another uh, New York Times bestselling book on the history of olive oil. Uh, He is a uh, highly regarded writer, uh, journalist, and uh, a former Rhodes Scholar, as well as a very well-educated individual. Tom, it's very nice to have you on with us. Great to be here, Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, Before we turn to our discussion with Tom, we have uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? A Voice Calling in the Desert. Let's hear it. A Voice Calling in the Desert. Walks Clementis in Deserto. I have this image of a man in a suit and tie falling to his knees in one of those mirage shots of the Nafud in Lawrence of Arabia's imagined Jordan and screaming out among the hot sand of aloneness with unique sanity. And sometimes it can feel that way for all of us strolling among the sandy trails along the riverbank in the Texas sun. And to me it is a stop sign on one of those endless 95 mile an hour highways in West Texas that shines red in the sun printed in white letters. Nevertheless, to blow the whistle next to a crime scene and hide away in the crowds of people doesn't really seem heroic in our time. But at one point or another, we, have all, we all have to be a voice in a desert, whether it's humanity in a war zone or wacky remembrances of pre-war New England in a wheelchair in a nursing home. We all call attention to something higher than ourselves. And we all may be here just to pass along some memory, some decision not to stay silent anymore. And it is hard to lead a life of memory when everything is so distressing as it's, it's as if you would just explode. But sanity is a gift in a desert. And Vietnam was greed, and Ellsberg was on an airplane with all the facts in a file box, and Watergate was paranoia, and Felt was truth in a suburban parking garage, and the Patriot Act was espionage, and Snowden was complicated freedom with his flash drive, and they are unnamed, our anonymous screamers, still com- commuting to work, filling their mugs with coffee and creamer in office kitchens somewhere near the Capitol. But they are history with all its blunt force of reality, crushing it all like a car crash tested into concrete. Wow, Zachary, I love the range you have there from Ellsberg to Felt to Snowden. What's your poem about, Zachary? Well, my poem is really about the power of one voice uh, and how that can bring out so many other powerful uh, voices that have been silent. Uh, particularly the power of one sane voice in a desert of insane voices and how yeah. it can really lead us closer to the truth. Wow. Mm. And aloneness um, with unique sanity really struck me because uh, so often there the whistleblower, uh, him or herself, is accused of insanity, of narcissism yes. and so on, and yet they know or, or try to hold on to the, the conviction that they are the one sane person in this crazy group. 
That's that's so well said, Tom. And it, it actually was my first question for you after reading this 500-page, uh, uh, deeply moving history of whistleblowers. How do we differentiate uh, a whistleblower from a, a celebrity-seeking narcissist? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, the facts um, are, are critical. What facts do they bring forward? Um, and um, the impact that they have or they attempt to have. Uh, I, I think ultimately motivations, um, although it makes a good story, we want to hear the heroic whistleblower prevailing against the evil uh, organization, uh, can be a big distraction. Um, what we need to focus on is what detailed information, evidence of wrongdoing or of, of potential human harm um, is being brought forward by this person. And this person can be a thoroughgoing bastard. I mean, they, right. don't, they aren't necessarily nice folks at all. Um, we shouldn't be concerned by that, and we shouldn't be deflected um, by those who try to quelch their message by attacking the messenger. Right. It's almost as if uh, when the whistleblower is focusing on the evidence, that makes the whistleblower more credible. If it's about the personality, sometimes the whistleblower might focus on his or her own personality, then they're less credible, Correct. Certainly, because it, once again, I mean, the, the point of the whistleblowing exercise presumably is to bring forward problems, not to talk about themselves and, and stand up on a soapbox, mistrust those who go on and on and on about their background and how much they've suffered. And, and those people exist, of course. And, and in the trade in, among whistleblower advocates, they're called the tin hatters, those who <laughs> have, have a sort of a major conspiracy theory, or maybe, you know, in good faith, but they've just got it wrong. You know, right. their facts aren't good. Um, that doesn't make them evil, but they can, they can be a huge distraction and, and waste of time. And sometimes they are, you know, sure. sometimes w- would-be whistleblowers actually do, um, you know, cripple their small agency, cause enormous and unnecessary harm to their organization. Right, right. Now, one of the most extraordinary things about your book, Tom, is you talk about how far back the history of whistleblowers goes. Uh, where, where do we really start the story? Well, I started looking at this fascinating Lincoln-era, Civil War-era law called the False Claims Act. Mm-hmm. Um, 1863, um, once, again, once again, as in history, as in today, defense contractors were robbing the Union Army blind. And Lincoln and, and several others said, well, right, that's enough. We need, a, we need a law that will stop that. And they passed the False Claims Act, which has this magnificent um, mechanism in it, the key TAM mechanism, which, which is short for he who brings suit on his own behalf and on behalf of the king. Now, that got my attention because first it's Latin and I'm a medievalist. <laughs> and second, it goes back to medieval common law and, be, and, and beyond that to Roman law. Um, and it's, it's a mechanism that allows an individual to become a private attorney general, and pursue a case on his own behalf on be- and on behalf of the American people, even if the Department of Justice or the U.S. government is not interested in pursuing it. And that's a critical forcing mechanism, because sometimes the U.S. government is too cozy with, uh, right. with the perps. Um, so that's one very nice historical, um, you know, the Civil War and sure. Abe Lincoln. Um, another one is 1778, the Continental Congress. Um, the Congress heard from a Marine who had gone AWOL from his ship to report the no, no less than the Commodore of the Navy, Isaac Hopkins, who had abused, uh, according to them, um, British prisoners, had been guilty of dereliction of duty. Um, and, and this Marine was a voice of 10 um, um, service, servicemen who accused the Commodore, and needless to say, huge risk to themselves. And the, the Congress did not punish them. In fact, the Congress 
praised them, celebrated them um, by saying that, um, by passing a law, saying it is the right and the duty of all people of this nation to call out public officials for wrongdoing. So it's, um, it, it, this is very much deeply ingrained in American history. And I would argue that the that the founders themselves had a lot of whistleblowing in them. I mean, they took, they, sure. they forsook their, um, or, or decided to go against their loyalty to, you know, to their nation to create a new nation. Um, and they, their, their authority to their divine monarch to higher authorities like, uh, you know, justice, truth, right, <laughs> all, right, those, right. all those wonderful things. But it's 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 extraordinary, Tom, because uh, generally when we talk about American governance, we emphasize checks and balances in a very Madisonian way, and we see checks and balances institutions, not individuals, serving as the vital protections of democracy. That's of course how Madison writes about this. You're making an argument that there's a tradition about individual uh, wrong calling and individuals coming forward to identify institutional corruption that's as important, correct? Yes, the individual conscience is, I think, a central part of, of our founding documents. That you know that that voice that Zachary so eloquently mentioned will not be drowned out, uh, must not be lost. And you know, seventy years of social science has told us, you know, post World War II has told us how dangerous it is to conscience um, to allow uh, a transcendent mission to create a huge emotive force and an enormous forward forward momentum um, that can be lethal. Um, and the individual conscience really is, is what we need to fall back on. So when I you know, can say all men are created equal um, and have certain unalienable rights, I can't help but hear someone who wants to support an individual voice and an individual conscience. Interesting. You, you make the point about halfway through the book, pages 199 to 200, uh, that this is a characteristically, these are your words, characteristically American phenomenon. But in the next paragraph, you also point out that it brings up deep contradictions, that there's a deep uh, contradiction in the American soul between the individualism you just so eloquently described, but also a sense of patriotism, loyalty to institutions, uh, following the rules. Uh, how, how have Americans reconciled this contradiction? Well, I think it is quintessentially American in the sense that it's pragmatic. You know, you, you offer a bounty in some cases to right. get people to come forward. Um, and it's a, it's a public-private partnership of the kind that Reagan celebrated and many, many, many have celebrated since. However, I mean, in, my, in, in the course of my research for this book, I was quite surprised to learn that um, as compared with many nations, um, Sweden, France, and others, um, the likelihood that an average American will... Um, go along with the authoritative statement, whatever that statement may be, um, about law-breaking, about war-fighting, and about much else, is far greater um, than, than the other um, citizens in the other nations I mentioned. Um, once an American joins an institution, um, they are more likely to go with the program, to, to follow the rules of the institution. So we fancy ourselves these sort of uh, frontier go-it-alone, very individualistic people. But in reality, Americans, um, we need to watch out. Um, we need to question authority. We right. need to question our group uh, and, and make sure it's pointed in the right direction. This is the old warning that the great historian Richard Hofstadter had given, right, which is that mm -hmm. within the American tradition is a tradition of, quite frankly, right, partisanship, uh, as much as there is a tradition of individualism. And we're certainly seeing that today, I think, correct? We certainly are, yes. I mean, the our in-groups have, 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 have shrunk down to tribes, and, and uh, 
you know, everyone else is a potential enemy, if not subhuman. Why, why, Tom, this is one of the second big arguments, maybe the most radical argument you make. Why have we seen more whistleblowing, as you document so well in this book? Why have we seen more of it in the last 10 to 20 years than in the past? Well, I think we see more whistleblowing because whistleblowers are more and more the last line of defense. I mean, we've systematically underfunded and, and outsourced um, a number of regulatory authorities who would ordinarily call out wrongdoing. Um, investigative journalism is gradually fading or rapidly fading in our rearview mirror. Um, there are a lot of people, once upon a time, a lot of jobs um, that were, that were um, detailed with calling out wrongdoing. Um, hmm. At the same time, there's an enormous amount of normalization of what would ordinarily, what would in the past have been considered illegal or immoral behavior as clever business practice. Um, you know, we accept conflicts of interest like revolving door as an excellent career move rather than, rather than distorting, which is really what it is. Uh, we have an increasing cult of legalization and secrecy. So if I want to ask a question of anyone at a university and an NGO, they refer me to legal. And right. legal says we have no comment and the right. conversation <laughs> is over. So all of these things, I think, have driven a, uh, a, a, you know, a kind of a hermetically sealed environment among institutions and, and organizations that um, people from the outside are just at more and more um, pains to understand what's going on on the inside. And insiders know this. And a few insiders with a conscience uh, feel it's their duty to speak out. So I think that's why whistleblowing has, has risen in the last couple decades. Zachary, you had a question? Yeah. Uh, historically and currently, how has and, and how does the media display uh, whistleblowers? Yeah, it's the saint or sinner principle here, unfortunately, and I think this does a great disservice to whistleblowers. So often um, they are portrayed as these noble, um, you know, um, courageous, which often they are, um, uh, truth-tellers and people of conscience, um, or uh, they're, created, they're, they're portrayed as narcissistic spies and, and uh, disgruntled employees, and the, the usual dichotomy. And, and I think that really, again, takes us away from the facts. What facts do these people bring forward? And how good are those facts? Can they be proven in a court of law? Those are the key questions we need to ask. And creating this uh, saint or sinner um, uh, dichotomy does a great disservice, I think, to, to many whistleblowers. Because if you're supposed to be Mother Teresa and someone finds a mole <laughs> on the back of your neck, all of a sudden, your entire narrative goes out the window. Right. right. I like your point before, Tom, that, that you could be a uh, far from perfect person, but still bring out really important information. This is how you talk about Edward Snowden, for example, in, in the book, it seems to be. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know Ed um, uh, personally. I have read a great deal about him. I think a great deal of him. I, I, I'm not sure he's the perfect example, but, you know, in order to, in order to speak out, you quite often must not be a go-along-to-get-along person. You must not be the life of the party. You might be a little prickly. You might be a little rules-based. You might be a little <laughs> eagle scout, um, and, which means that, you know, it, you're more free from the, you know, the ties of, of friendship and loyalty, and, and you can actually speak the truth. Um, right. You know, a number of people that I interviewed for my book um, in, you know, nuclear safety and in food safety and in healthcare and so on, they, they found themselves... Um, very rapidly at odds with their with their group, but but always questioned um, the the tendency of people just to 
wallow hook, line, and sinker the the organization's mission statement um, and not 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 push back at it. What do you say to uh, those who, and, and many are making this argument now, uh, who say, well, whistleblowers are really just a sign of the deep state, of individuals who are trying to stand in the way of change because they don't like change? Mm-hmm. Well, again, it's deflecting from the facts. We're taking, we're taking the messenger rather than the message. Um, what are their motivations? What's in their mind? Who are the puppet, puppet masters who are pulling their strings? I think the current Ukraine whistleblowers yeah. at this point is a great example of that. Now, it may well be that this is a, a sort of a palace coup, you know, the revenge of the Clappers and the Haydens and so on. But, you know, until otherwise proven, what we're interested in is the data they can bring forward and the documents that they can supply and the individuals um, who will be called forward under subpoena to testify before Congress. We want to know what they know. And I don't care what they have for breakfast or what, what kind of lapel pin they wear. I want to know their facts. So that's, again, just like, the, like Trump and company who call them spies. And, you know, I think the deep state narrative, while it may be true, um, it, it is a deflection from what we need to know from these people. And if, and if it turns out that, that, that this is a conspiracy without fact, they need to be punished. Um, but uh, my suspicion is that they're, they're very much telling us what we already partially know from the White House itself. Right. And and what about uh, the claim the president has made that he should have a right to confront uh, the whistleblowers? Should they be protected in their anonymity? Absolutely. It's guaranteed by law. I mean, his statement is complete poppycock. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, you know, high plains drifter conversation. Uh, I need to meet them in the OK Corral. Yeah. That's complete rubbish. <laughs> they're, they're, their anonymity is guaranteed by law. They made that those disclosures. Well, the, both of them so far have made their disclosures. Um, under that guarantee, now they may decide to give that up, and it, and it may be given up for them when they testify before Congress. But that is a that is a guarantee of the law, and anonymity in in their case, and in many cases of whistleblowing, is the ideal world scenario. Because you know, once you are known, um, the 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 smear machine goes into full uh, full speed, and the damage to you personally and professionally. Uh, can be immense, and your career is largely over in many cases. And and I think, by the way, that's another real strength of your book. You show uh, how powerful retaliation often is, uh, whether it's a military or intelligence whistleblower, or a university whistleblower, or someone in uh, in, in uh, state government. Uh, and and it, it really brought home to me in your book how important anonymity is to protect someone and to provide them with the sense that they could do this and still have a life, right? Right. Yeah. I, the the visceral, uh, personal nature of of retaliation is something that is really shocking uh, to see, and it happens again and again and again in all of the arenas I look at. And it, it tells me that that's deeply rooted in human nature, and, and in the uh, the you know the loyalty and authority drives that that have helped us to survive through hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, but at the same time create um, enemies or potential enemies of everyone outside of our tribal group, right. uh, you know, in certain environments, um, that those, those become so charged. And I think whistleblowing is one of the most um, uh, eye-opening uh, examples, like road rage and various others, where <laughs> this over-the-top reaction occurs.
So, Tom, we like to close every uh, one of our episodes uh, with a a positive uh, historical set of lessons and even a positive agenda for our many young listeners. Uh, This is, as you said before we we, uh, turned on the recording, uh, this is in some ways a very depressing book. It's a a book about a society that isn't able to uh, protect itself unless people come forward. And it's a book about those who come forward often paying a very high price. Uh, what, What are the lessons that we can take from this for the renewal of our democracy? I think more than any other lesson I got out of this book and having the privilege to spend a lot of time with a lot of whistleblowers, although um, their difficulties are, are, are extreme uh, and, and their ability to actually fix problems is sometimes limited, the fact that an individual, one person armed with facts, can step forward take on a multi-billion dollar uh, multinational corporation or an entire government agency and prevail um, is a really uplifting thing. I mean, the voice, the power of the truth is remarkably strong. And I think that's empowering that voice further um, is, is something that, that will undoubtedly bring us closer to a more just society. Uh, it's uplifting to see these people say, look, I had to do it because that's just the way I am. That's the way, I'm, that's the way Americans are. And I think, uh, as one of my whistleblowers said, we've kind of forgotten how to be Americans, and, and, and they may help us remember how. And, and Tom, you, you're still optimistic that this, this powerful history will continue, uh, even in a world where people attack the facts, as they often do. This is another key question, you know, in a, in a, when whistleblowing, the currency of whistleblowing is facts, uh, post-facts, uh, debase that currency. But, you know, we all have a conscience. We all have common sense. I think we realize, a lot of us hopefully realize, that we've really gone way beyond the pale. I mean, my book traces the, the, the steps by which, over 50 years, um, the, the ground was prepared for Trump. He didn't come from Mars. He came from a series of historical uh, evolutions that are quite clear to, to trace. Uh, we, we definitely need to come back to honesty, facts, uh, ethics, professional ethics, and, and all of those who have helped to undercut facts and, and, and on the left and the right um, need to take a step back and say, what, what, it is, what is it that we have that has brought us so near to the brink here? Um, but I think, you know, uh, I think that things have gotten so badly that a lot of people will get up off the couch, put down their remote and <laughs> vote and make their politics physical. Zachary, what do you think? Uh, is this inspiring for young people like you? Yes, I, I think this is uh, a really powerful uh, a tool because I, I think something that really resonated with what you said was the the power of, of, of the anonymity. It takes the personal away. And I think that the this idea of the whistleblower makes all of us stand back and really think about w- what moment we're in and, and how we've come to this moment. I agree, Zachary. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. I want to encourage all of our listeners uh, at this moment when we're reading about whistleblowers uh, to uh, read Tom's book, uh, Crisis of Conscience, published by Tom Muller. Really a terrific uh, elaboration of many of the points that Tom made here. Uh, Zachary, thank you for your poem. Thank you for joining us on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. 
Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.